All right, good, good, good. Welcome. Those of you who are here with us in person, we're glad to see you. Happy Sunday to you. Those of you who are joining us by live stream, welcome to you as well. We're happy to see you, quote unquote. Um, so we're, uh, we are continuing our work. I hope it's okay with you. I'm going to keep my jacket on. It's a little, for those of you who join us by live stream, it's a little chilly in here still this morning. So uh, it's not exactly a fashion statement, but I'm going to keep it on if that's all right. Not for a fashion statement, but just purely to help stay warm. We are continuing this morning our uh, compelling study um, on, well, it's on religious violence. We've been in this study for a few weeks, well, five weeks. This is part five according to my uh, title this morning, and we are following along very closely with the thought process and the scholarly work of Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, former chief rabbi of Great Britain. He passed away last year, um, as written in his book titled Not in God's Name, directly where we've gotten our title for this series, Not in God's Name, where throughout the book, basically, Rabbi Sachs is asking the question, how is it? that people can hate in the name of the God of love, commit cruelty in the name of the God of compassion, practice violence in the name of the God of peace? How is it that people can seek revenge in the name of the God of forgiveness? And perhaps most pointedly, how is it that people can kill in the name of the God of life? Now, we know that Jesus saw this coming. He said, at one point, he said, there will come a day when people will kill you and believe that they're doing God a favor. Um, and so this is a perennial problem. This book, by the way, was written um, some years ago, and uh, Rabbi Sachs wrote this book in the wake of 9-11, uh, a climate in which at that time, Islamic terrorism was front and center. Um, but of course, the problem, again, you know, back to Jesus' words 2,000 years ago, Islamic terrorism uh, more recently, um, th you know, this is a thing for us, um, religious violence uh, in our time and times past, in our part of the world and in other parts of the world. Um, and of course, as I've said before, what really pushed me over the edge to do this study with you together, having read this book sometime back and was compelled by it, but I um, did kind of put it on the back burner. And then when the events of January the 6th took place at the U.S. Capitol, it really kind of pushed me over the edge. Okay, this is a conversation we need to have. Not because people behaved violently on January the 6th, that happens, uh, but because of the presence of the Jesus banners in the midst of the chaos. Uh, and even I've seen, we've seen some of the image of people, at least one group, subgroup, carrying a cross uh, in the midst of all of that uh, chaos and violence and even death. And so, um, you know, this is, a, this is something that we need to talk about. And so, uh, in the effort to summarize kind of where we've gotten to so far, um, we've talked about violence in general. We spent a couple weeks talking about violence in general, and, and we related uh, the source, or a source, of human violence to our groupishness, that is, our tendency to live and thrive in groups. And with that, we tend to show altruism toward members of our group, our in-group, uh, while we tend to show, more likely to show aggression against members of our uh, out-group. Um, this coupled together with, there is a tendency among all of us to hold 
a more favorable view of the members of our group, because after all, those are my people, my group, etc., um, while we tend to hold a less favorable view uh, of members of our out group or other outside groups. And this is known as group bias, and there's been all kinds of studies uh, done on this phenomenon. So there's groupishness and group bias, kind of as a starting point, as a framework for the working out of violence. And then we talked about a couple weeks ago, this phenomenon of pathological dualism, what we call pathological dualism. This is kind of the next step beyond groupishness and uh, more or less very common uh, group bias. Pathological dualism refers to this, the view that the world is actually divided between two kinds of people. There are the uh, completely good and the completely bad. There are the children of darkness and the children of light. And each individual is one or the other. Each individual is a member of either the good guys or the bad guys. And so pathological dualism is just a way of describing this phenomenon where, um, where sometimes at least some people divide the world up entirely into the good guys and the bad guys. And you can see where this phenomenon coupled together with kind of basic groupishness plus pathological dualism, well, now you have a framework where my people in my group, we are the good guys, and all those other people in all those other groups or that other group, they are the bad guys. We are completely good. They are completely evil. And from this phenomenon, all kinds of other um, sub-phenomenon begin to flow, splitting and projection, where we take any, anything that we might view about ourselves or our group as negative, we deny that in ourselves and we project it onto others. It's not us who want to control the world, it's those other people who want to control the world. It's not us who want to control the banks, it's those other people who want to control the banks. It's not us who want to force our way upon everyone else, it's those people who want to force their way upon all the rest of us. So splitting and projection dehumanization where they're not even human anymore. They are vicious people. They are vermin. They are, you know, whatever. Um, and then this idea of victimization emerges directly from that. So, in other words, um, it's not that we are seeking to behave aggressively. It's that we need to defend ourselves against the onslaught from the aggressors. And so we are the victims of their um, aggression against us. And so what we're doing is really not aggression. It's just self-defense, right? So, so this is what we've talked about so far. Um, violence in general, pathological dualism that flows from that. Um, but that's not religious yet. That has really nothing to do with religion. Any person can, or any group of people could kind of fall under that, you know, syndrome, if you will. Um, so where does religion come in? Well, we talked about it last week, the scapegoat mechanism. Once we get that far in the process, groupishness plus pathological dualism, if there is any remaining moral objection uh, to uh, committing violence against this outgroup, this perceived aggressor group uh, against us, then the scapegoat mechanism can take care of the rest. And the scapegoat mechanism is where we collectively, we identify a single individual or a single subgroup uh, upon whom we can blame all of our trouble. And then we can vent all of our anger, frustration, anxiety, fear onto that single individual as if that person is to blame for all of our violence and anxiety and fear. And we can vent and release uh, all of that onto a single individual or subgroup as a scapegoat. And so in that sense, the scapegoat then becomes the substitute victim of all of our collective violence. And of course, we see this over and over again in history, the classic case of this uh, in Nazi Germany was the Jewish 
the Jewish race became the scapegoat for all of the anxiety and fear and indeed even historically speaking the humiliation of the German culture. Um, but more recently, you know, racism is a form of scapegoating. Um, again, back to January the 6th, uh, isn't it ironic that it came down to, at least for some of the members of the mob on January 6th, that their cry was, hang Mike Pence. Now, what did Mike Pence have to do with the outcome of the election? Ostensibly, this group was frustrated over the outcome of the election. Mike Pence actually had nothing to do. He didn't count the ballots. He didn't cast the votes. Um, and yet it came down to the cry of hang Mike Pence, a classic case of scapegoat mechanism at work in that instance on January the 6th. And so there you have the stepping across the line of religion because the scapegoat mechanism, as Rene Girard, uh, French anthropologist, shows is that the scapegoat mechanism is actually a religious act. It's not holy, but it is religious. And so there with the scapegoat mechanism, we cross, step across the line in our exploration, that is, and we find the presence of religion very often in the process of committing violence, but not surprisingly, surprisingly so, religion here is positioned not as the source of violence, but as an effort to solve the violence. In other words, we collectively become this chaotic, um, enmeshed uh, contagion of anxiety, fear, violence, aggravation, competition, etc., and we vent all of that onto a scapegoat, and what happens in the aftermath of that venting onto the scapegoat is that, lo and behold, there is indeed some kind of catharsis that occurs. And the elimination or the expulsion of the scapegoat does indeed result in, more or less, what feels like or seems like a return to peace. This is and becomes a religious experience. And so the scapegoat mechanism then is repeated again and again and again because it feels like it brings a form of salvation. So the scapegoat mechanism is a religious act. It's not holy, but it is a religious act. So there we have kind of a framework for understanding violence, and even we have a framework for, for, for uh, scooping in the idea of religion. So we have so far there, okay, so this is a pretty good framework for understanding religious violence. But our question is more specific than that. Specifically what we're interested in and I'll say it this way, and then we'll have to back up a little bit. What I'm interested in is how do we understand or explain the presence of violence within Christianity specifically, not just religion in general, but Christianity in particular. And so today, what we're going to do once again is uh, follow along with the thinking of Rabbi Sachs, and we're going to back up at least one little half step from the question there, and we're going to say it like this, then how do we explain um, the presence of violence within Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. That is the three great monotheistic faiths of the world, um, and more specifically, the three faiths that find their origin in the historical figure of Abraham. Three faiths that emerge from Abraham, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. There must be some cause, there must be some way that we can explain the Crusades, where Christians launched out against Muslims. The Jihads, where the Muslims launched out against, well, I suppose the Christians and the Jews. Forced conversions, the Inquisitions, burnings at the stake, pogroms and genocide committed against uh, ethnic Jews and others. There must be some cause or some way that we can explain or at least attempt to understand the phenomenon of suicidal terrorism. All of these, as a reminder, 
All of these have occurred within these three faiths, religions devoted to love, forgiveness, and compassion. And so the question more pointedly becomes, what is it that could bring Jews, Christians, and Muslims, children of a common father, that is Abraham, to such animosity against each other for so long? That's kind of our headline question uh, for today. Now, let's ask a question that's underneath that question, which is, goes back to um, what is the root cause of violence? You know, it's interesting. Um, we talked about Rene Girard last week in the scapegoat mechanism. Um, Girard uh, also asked this question, this further question. Okay, yeah, scapegoat mechanism becomes an effort to, uh, to solve violence. But he asked a question backing up from there. What is the root cause of violence? And he offered an explanation which is, mm, I guess, initially surprising. But then when you think about it for a while, um, it's really not all that surprising. He used an odd word to describe it because I guess that's what smarty pants scholars do. Um, but it's really not all that hard to understand once you understand what he means. What he says is that the root cause of violence is mimetic desire or mimesis. And that is a Greek word that means what you think imitation that the root cause of violence is imitation the root cause of violence according to Rene Girard is mimesis or mimetic desire mimetic desire what do you mean by that well mimetic desire is and here's where it starts to absolutely make sense wanting what someone else has simply because they have it that's mimetic desire the easiest way to start to kind of get your feet wet and get your mind around this is to think about children, right? Maybe um, children at play in the family or children of friend group on the playground or whatever it might be. One child is given a new toy, and what happens? Suddenly all the other children want that toy. They didn't want it before. Before their colleague or their friend or their sibling was given that toy, the other children didn't even know what that toy was. Perhaps they had no desire for that toy. But now suddenly because someone in their orbit has that toy. Now suddenly, all the other children want the toy. Mimetic desire, kind of the next step, furthermore, mimetic desire is not simply wanting what someone else has. Ultimately, it is the desire to be what someone else is. And so it's not just that I want that guy's car. And it's not just that I want that guy's house or that guy's corner office what's really going on is I want to be that guy right this is mimesis this is mimetic desire and it often leads to violence because if I want what you have and you don't want to give up what you have then guess what eventually we're going to fight or if you want what I have and I don't want to give up what I have either because it's precious to me or it's scarce or for whatever reason then eventually we're going to fight. And so Professor Girard takes a further step into this phenomenon, and he actually suggests that the root source of this kind of competitive mimetic uh, competition, I guess that's redundant, but anyway, um, is between siblings. In other words, that ground zero for this kind of competition and strife is sibling rivalry or I'm, I'm translating his his thinking 
but um, we might say that the primal arena for mimetic competition is among siblings or sibling rivalry. And, you know, you might want to say, yeah, well, maybe, you know, and I might want to say, yeah, well, maybe, certainly, I mean, as a parent of children, I hope for better than that for, for my children. So I want to push back a little bit, and yet, let's just appreciate for a moment um, a, a few observations. Isn't it true that both our, 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 our storytelling in both biblical literature and in the common stories that we tell in culture more broadly, whether in myth or in uh, literature, isn't it true that sibling rivalry plays a central role again and again, right? Like think about the biblical narrative, particularly the book of Genesis. Think about the, the, the frequency with which sibling rivalry occurs in the book of Genesis. Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers. I mean, the first recorded murder in the Bible, Cain kills his brother Abel. It is a fratricide. The first murder recorded among humanity, the establishment of humanity, right? The Genesis narrative. The first recorded murder is a fratricide. Outside the Bible, I mean, you can, you can just scan your own memory in terms of literature and, and mythic storytelling. Um, Shakespeare's Hamlet begins with a fratricide, a brother killing a brother. The founding myth of the establishment of the city of Rome um, Romulus kills his brother Remus, and uh, the, this, this fratricide emerged from an argument over between the two of them over where the city of Rome would be built. So the story for the Romans is that, you know, we're built in this location because uh, Romulus killed Remus, and he decided where this city was going to be built. I mean, on and on and on it goes. I mean, so, so I, my, my suggestion is that there's enough here for us to um, entertain this perspective, at least in the effort um, for us to move forward and understand, again, not just violence, not just religious violence, but violence within, in our case, what we're interested in is violence within Christianity, which falls in this category of the Abrahamic faiths, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. So let me tell you what I'm going to present to you this morning. I'm going to do two things, and one we've already done. Is to suggest that the primal, the core, the, mm, I don't mean, I'm, this is going to sound wrong, but the, the genesis act of violence, the original violence, is fratricide. Sibling rivalry plays this central role in human conflict, and it begins with mimetic desire. The desire to have what your brother has and even to be what your brother is. Now, the second observation that we're going to make today is this, that within each of these three Abrahamic faiths, sibling rivalry actually plays a prominent role in Judaism. And we're going to be looking at these in close detail over the next several weeks. But think again of the founding stories of Judaism, Cain and Abel, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Rachel and Leah, Joseph and his brothers. In Christianity, and we're going to talk about this in detail this morning, but here in the teachings of the New Testament, shockingly, surprisingly, we actually do see the theme of sibling rivalry taking a central role in the writings of the New Testament. 
And then in, in Islam, and I've already said before, and I'll say it again, I'm not an expert um, in Islam, uh, but I do have uh, one personal experience I'll tell you about. Soon after 9-11, I went to uh, Detroit with a group of pastors. And um, among other things, while we were there, we had the opportunity to hear an imam speak, one of the, the leader of one of the local mosques there uh, in Detroit. And um, I'll never forget, he said to us, and he was a very kind man, um, but we had a lot of Q&A with him, a lot of questions, and we just really wanted to just tap his brain for his understanding of the events of 9-11, you know. Um, and he said to us at one point in his remarks, he said, you know, he said, um, just as you Christians, your understanding is that your faith is the perfection of Judaism. You understand your faith as the perfection of Judaism and that it is superior to Judaism. You understand that your faith is a further revelation of God, further along than Judaism. He said the same is true of us Muslims. We see our faith as a further revelation from God um, that, is, that is a perfection of both the Jewish faith and the Christian faith and is superior, therefore, to both the Jewish faith and the Christian faith. And so I just submit that to you in support of this idea that within each of the three Abrahamic faiths, there is this theme of sibling rivalry. In other words, each one competing for the same thing, and that is, you know, the favored people, the chosen people, the promise that God gave to Abraham, competing for the same thing. So having said that, let's go within that and look at this theme of sibling rivalry within Christianity. And what I'm doing here this morning, along with um, taking cues from Rabbi Sachs, is we're following the finder, findings of a group of scholars who went to work um, in the years after the Holocaust. And their basic driving question was this. How is it that the Holocaust could happen in the heart of Christian Europe? In other words, their driving assumptions was that something like the Holocaust could never be derived purely from Christianity. Surely that's not so. And so what is it, how is it that Christianity could either be ignored or misunderstood sufficiently so in order to allow for, and indeed many of the participants uh, in the Holocaust uh, uh, were convinced that they were, in fact Hitler himself said to his dying day, he said he was doing the Lord's work. So how is it that something like the Holocaust could happen in the heart of Christian Europe. And so this group of scholars, there's a name for them collectively, and I can't recall at the moment. But uh, they kind of trace this historical progression, and I'm going to give you at least a sketch of it this morning. And again, for us, and this is hard to hear, I admit, but scandalously so, uh, they began with the writings of the Apostle Paul. Here's an example, listen to this, from Galatians chapter 4. Tell me. You who desire to be subject to the law, will you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and the other by a free woman. One, the child of the slave, was born according to the flesh. The other, the child of the free woman, that's uh, Sarah giving birth to Isaac, was born through the promise. Now, this is an allegory, he says. These women are two covenants. One woman, in fact, is Hagar, 
from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the other woman corresponds to the Jerusalem above. She is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, you childless one, you who bear no children. Burst into song and shout, you who endure no birth pangs. For the children of the desolate woman are more numerous than the children of the one who is married. Now you, my friends, are the children of promise like Isaac. But just as at that time the child who was born according to the flesh persecuted the child who was born according to the spirit, so it is now also. But what does the scripture say? Drive out the slave and her child, for the child of the slave woman will not share the inheritance with the child of the free woman. So then, friends, we are children not of the slave, but of the free woman. Now, you remember the story that Paul is reflecting on here. It is the story of Abraham and Sarah and God promising uh, well, not just a child, but promising numerous descendants and offspring. Uh, and time goes by, and there's no pregnancy and no birth. And so they say, okay, we'll take this slave woman, Hagar, and um, Abraham will have a child through her. And so Ishmael is born uh, with Abraham as his father and Hagar as his mother. And then eventually uh, Sarah does become pregnant and gives birth to Isaac, and in that story, it's a very difficult story, but eventually there is this idea, drive out the slave woman, Hagar, and her child. We'll look at that in more detail in coming weeks, but this is what Paul is drawing on here. And notice what he's saying. He's saying, we, the people who have faith in Jesus, we are the descendants of Abraham through Sarah and Isaac. We are the descendants here. And he says, actually, the Jewish people who don't have faith in Christ are actually the descendants of Abraham through Ishmael and not the receivers, therefore, of the promise that God gave to Abraham. Now, we hear that as Christians, and it's encouraging, and it's warm, and it's yes, 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 yes. But man, I'm just going to tell you, and I do encourage you to, to get the book by Rabbi Sachs uh, called Not in God's Name. To hear him comment on a passage like this is absolutely heart-wrenching. Because he said, you know, every day for all of my life, I say in my prayers that I'm a child of the promise. I'm a child of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So when I read this, I hear Paul saying, no, you're not. He said, I hear Paul completely disinheriting me and my people. It's, it's heart-wrenching uh, to read his remarks as he reflects on this. Now, let me say, that's not the only way to read Paul. It's possible to read Paul as not, I mean, the word, look at the words there. Um, uh, where's, okay, anyway, at a point, and he's citing the story, drive out the slave woman and her child. It's like, how do you read that? Is Paul really saying that the Jewish people should be driven out? Is he really saying that the Jewish people are enslaved? Is he really saying that Mount Sinai and, and Jerusalem is a place of blindness and 
enslavement. It's not the only way to read Paul. And I just want to, like when I'm reading Rabbi Sachs write this, and of course he's passed away now, I want to say, wait, 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 wait. There's a better way to read Paul. <laughs> you know, um, and, and I would say, and if you want to work that out, I, I invite you to do that. But first of all, I would point you to the fact that Paul himself in this passage uses the word allegory, right? It's an allegory. <laughs> he's not really saying actually physically drive out the Jewish people. He is offering trouble. And then the second thing I would say is that, you know, context really does matter and the, particularly in Galatians and really in Paul's career on the whole, Paul is constantly hard at work. Um, not, you know, it's, it's funny for us to, to appreciate the fact that during Paul's time, there was no such thing as Christianity as we understand it. Paul was working within and working for, feverishly working for, a single church of Jew plus Gentile, always. And so, and so I... Paul, we could say then, is not asking Jewish people not to be Jewish. He's simply saying to keepers of the law, please don't force the keeping of the law upon these new, you know, this, this wild shoot that has been grafted in, as he says, in another place. And so I think probably for me, and this is, you know, what I would say, and we'll leave this and move on, but I would say that the best way to read Paul here in this passage and others like it is not that he's attacking Judaism per se, but that he is attacking Judaizers. And I hope that word makes sense, right? So he's, he's bowed up because particularly, especially in, in Galatia, there are uh, Jewish believers in Jesus who have infiltrated that church and said, yeah, we agree with everything Paul said. Jesus, 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 yes, 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 yes. And you need to start keeping the law. And you need to be circumcised. And you need to, you know, all those other things. And that's what Paul, I want to maintain, is Paul is reacting against. And yet, for someone who comes across this passage, uh, and uh, who, who doesn't seriously take context seriously, then you could read this as, as a, 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 a dismissal of one's entire heritage and faith and so on. Here's another example, Romans 9. It's not as though the word of God had failed, for not all Israelites truly belong to Israel. And not all of Abraham's children are his true descendants, but it is through Isaac that descendants shall be named for you. That's a quote. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, because Ishmael was also children of the flesh, child of the flesh. Uh, but, 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 but the children of the promise are counted as descendants, for this is what the promise said about this time I will return and Sarah will have a son. What's he saying? He's saying biological descent from Abraham is not enough to be considered an heir of the promise of God. In fact, Paul's going to say again and again and again that true descent from Abraham is not determined by biology, but by faith in Jesus, which again causes someone who considers himself a direct heir of Abraham through Isaac and through Jacob, but yet who does not have uh, the faith in Jesus that Christians have. Where does that leave that person? And again, all of this for us as Christians, this is warm and encouraging and supportive. And we hear that and we go, yes, yes, yes. But again, for someone who's not in on the Christian story, where does that leave them? Paul continues, verse 10. Nor is it that all, uh, nor is it that all, something similar, uh, nor is that all, excuse me, nor is that all, something similar happened to Rebecca when she had conceived children by one husband our ancestor Isaac. Even before they, that is the twins, had been born, 
or had done anything good or bad so that God's purpose of election might continue not by works but by his call. She, Rebecca, was told the elder shall serve the younger. This is when Rebecca is pregnant with the twins, uh, Esau and Jacob. And she's told by the oracle, and we're going to look at this story also in coming weeks. But she's told by the oracle, the elder shall serve the younger, as it's written here now, quoting the prophet Malachi. I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Wow. Now, who is the elder twin? Esau. He was born first. Who is the younger twin? That's Jacob. So I've loved Jacob and I've hated Esau and everybody. Just please appreciate in the context what Paul is saying is that those who have faith in Jesus are Jacob. And those who don't have faith in Jesus are Esau. And so, if you, again, if you just take it, if you take what's being written here, and again, I'm saying, I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth. I think there's a better way to read Paul here. But if you just take it like woodenly on surface level, what Paul is saying is that Jewish people who don't have faith in Jesus are Esau. And then he brings in this word from Malachi, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Ugh. So his, his argument is clear enough. God's purpose and election have proceeded through the younger faith, right? The elder will serve the younger. So the younger faith, Christianity, younger faith than Judaism. God elected those who have faith in Jesus, and he has rejected those who do not have faith in Jesus. Those who have faith in Jesus are Jacob. Those who do not have faith in Jesus are Esau and God has loved Jacob and hated Esau. Now, I have to repeat myself. It's not the only way to read Paul. But just from the standpoint of superficial, wooden, comparative religion, this is strong stuff. I mean, this is really strong stuff. You don't have to read it that way. But many Many, many people have read Paul in that way. In fact, in the generations after Paul, the church fathers, in many instances, picked up on this theme and tragically carried the ball further, as you, if you want to say it that way. Here's a quote from St. Cyprian. He says, also, Jacob received two wives. The elder Leah with weak eyes, a type of the synagogue. They're characterizing Judaism as a whole. The younger, the beautiful Rachel, the type of the church. And other influential church fathers, Tertullian, John Chrysostom, to name a few. This, this can be found in the writings of several of the church fathers. They took the tragic next step in the line of thinking and said flatly, the Jews are Cain who having killed their brother, Jesus, have now been sentenced to permanent exile. And of course, historically speaking, and it's hard for us to, to think of this, but, you know, uh, through most of those, you know, 3rd century, 4th century, 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth, in the Middle Ages, um, the Jewish people didn't have a nation. It, wasn't, it was only more re much more recently that the state of Israel was reconstituted and so um, it was, I guess, culturally um, 
arguable to view the Jewish race and their, you know, wandering as somehow cursed by God. Um, here's a 7th century writer, Prudentius, who said it this way. From place to place, the homeless Jew wanders in ever-shifting exile. This noble race is scattered and enslaved. It is in captivity under the younger faith. And so this image of the Jewish people as exiled, as um, uh, the embodiment of Cain having killed their brother, this image stuck and it becomes commonplace in the writings of the church uh, in those early centuries and, and even in through into the Middle Ages. It was common for Christians to see and speak of Jews as Cain. They had committed deicide, the killing of God, it was said. And therefore, they were, had been sentenced to a life of exile and wandering in the earth. The influential theologian, St. Augustine, of course, he picked up on this theme and it became pervasive throughout the church because of his kind of watershed influence. And all of this thinking then laid the groundwork for the very real practice of expelling Jews out from country after country throughout Europe in the Middle Ages, um, beginning in England in the year 1290, reaching its peak in Spain in 1492. If you've read The Merchant of Venice, um, Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice, you kind of get a pick, uh, you kind of get a feel for this um, cultural subjugation of the Jewish people within Spanish culture. And so this is the kind of thing that we're talking about. And, of course, then just a you know, couple centuries later, this would present itself among the Nazis in Germany and culminating in the final solution. The great irony here, of course, and, and again, you know, this, we just follow this trail from Paul through the church fathers and so on. Um, and, again, I want to say Paul misunderstood Paul, uh, Paul being misunderstood. But the, the great irony, of course, as I mentioned before, is that just a few centuries after Paul wrote about the, uh, the older faith serving the younger faith, the ironic thing is that Islam would come along and do the same thing for both Christianity and Judaism that Paul, at least as Paul was understood, uh, to have done for Judaism. Islam said that Abraham, Moses, and Jesus are all prophets preparing the way for the final revelation of God, from God, which is... Islam itself. And so they said that Abrahamic succession passed not through um, uh, Isaac, but through Ishmael, and Jews have falsified the Bible. That's why you guys think that, you know, succession comes through Isaac and so on. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. What's driving all this? What's driving all this? It's a shared desire for the same thing. Um, we can see clearly now, when you look at it from this perspective, we can see why it is that Jews and Muslims and Christians have been locked in this conflict, often violent conflict, for so long. Our relationship, historically speaking, is sibling rivalry. It is stirred by mimetic desire. We each want the same thing. That is Abraham's promise. And each of these three faiths claims that it holds possession of Abraham's promise. Oh, for sure, on one level, each of these three faiths are very, very different. But what they have in common is that they're all seeking to build 
their home on the same territory of the mind and heart, right? Favored people, chosen people. This might explain why, one reason why these three faith groups so frequently also fight over uh, uh, common geography, Jerusalem, the Holy Land, and so on, because the real conflict is over a territory of the mind. And again, with all of the differences among these three faiths, think about what they all share. There is one privileged position. There is one favored son, one chosen people, one guardian of truth, one gatekeeper of salvation. There is one religion who has gotten it right. And each of them says, we are it. And so, each of these groups, each faith group competes for the same thing. And what has resulted from this dynamic has been conflict frequently, too frequently, of the most tragic kind. And because when you, get, when you get in it, when you get in that competition, what's at stake is the most precious and most important thing of all. That is the fatherly love of God. One group's victory means another group's defeat, right? This is a, this is a winner, winners and losers kind of thing. One group wins, one group is defeated, and this is a humiliation of the losing group, kind of a dethronement from you know, this existential perch, and so it leads to revenge and retaliation, and then on and on and on the cycle continues. One of the most striking examples, and we mentioned this a minute ago, one of the most striking examples of this very dynamic that it still plays out in life, in history, in real time today, actually comes from that passage in Genesis where Rebecca inquires of the Lord through an oracle during her pregnancy with Jacob uh, and Esau. Genesis 25, it says this, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two people born of you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The elder shall serve the younger. And from this statement, I mean, it seems clear enough. Now, we're going to, again, in weeks ahead, we're going to come back and, and um, work with this a little bit. But it seems clear enough, just read on the surface, that there are not just two children in Rebecca's womb at this time, but two destinies. So two peoples. And they're destined for conflict. That their relationship will be contentious, antagonistic. That there will be a winner and a loser and that the one can only win by subjugating the other. And if the subjugated one doesn't like that, well, there's going to be conflict. The elder will serve the younger, the oracle says. Um, and again, this describes exactly the relationship between these three faiths, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. In each case, the younger faith believes it has prevailed over the elder. Does everybody see that? So this is an intense sibling rivalry. Each of these faiths considers it to be the heir to the Abraham covenant. So when you lay it out like that, the conclusion that we come to so far, and I, this is admittedly not very helpful, um, and thankfully we're not going to stop here, but you know, it, it looks like conflict is baked into the cake, right? Um, like, even if conflict lies dormant for centuries, even, maybe, whenever the circumstances seem to suggest that this is a time for religious revival, well, 
assuming that embedded within one's concept of religion is this winners and losers phenomenon, this competing for sole and exclusive claim to favored son, favored position. As long as, as long as that notion is embedded in the faith, then whenever there's a revival of that faith, then guess what? Here comes the conflict all over again. This is predictable. When each faith defines itself, at least in part, um, as the negation of the faith of others. Now, let me just kind of pause a quick sidebar here before we kind of take the next two questions that are going to pave the way for us going forward. Uh, so far, all of those observations are around what I, I think I used the phrase comparative religions a moment ago, but all of that thinking is around both the theology and the history of these three great monotheistic faiths, Judaism, Christianity, and, and, and Islam. But let me just say as a sidebar, I think when you start to think of it like this in these terms, you can also trace a similar syndrome within various subgroups of Christianity itself, right? Like ever since, well, I guess if you go back before the Reformation, the, the great East-West schism around the turn of the first millennium, uh, you could say you could apply it to there, but certainly with the Reformation around 500 years later and for sure in the generations subsequent to the Protestant Reformation, isn't it true that each of these new schisms of the Christian faith actually becomes a schism because they believe we've got something right that those other people got wrong, right? And so in a way, it is, a, hopefully, well, not in all cases, but in most cases, a milder version of the very same thing. We're going to split away from these other, from those other Christ, former Christian brothers and sisters who we've now determined don't, don't have anything right because we have this truth which makes us God's favorites now, which makes us God's actual people now. So in a way, this, this phenomenon of sibling rivalry just goes on and on and on with schism after schism after schism. Okay, so where does this leave us, though? Back to, now back to this historical story of the Abrahamic faiths. Where does this leave us? A um, couple of observations. Uh, first, it's commonly thought, and we, and in fact, this is the way I presented it, that I actually presented it this way. It's commonly assumed that the rivalry began first with the birth of Christianity, and now you have this rivalry between the Christian faith and the Jewish faith, and then with the birth of Islam, and now you have the competition among all three. It's commonly thought that the sibling rivalry is the fruit of the emergence of a new faith, first in Christianity and then in Islam. But when you make that assumption and then test that assumption against observation, what you find is that no, in fact, I've already said this this morning, is that actually sibling rivalry as a central theme exists within the Jewish scriptures. So the theme of, of sibling rivalry um, uh, between Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers, these instances of sibling rivalry exist within Judaism itself long before there was a Christianity, long before there was an Islam. Now that's a, that's a shocking observation, I think important observation. I'm going to give you a little bit of a, a pointer to where we're going. Perhaps we see this theme, the importance of this theme of sibling rivalry in the Jewish scriptures themselves because it's not the case that this is an interfaith 
problem. This is an interhuman problem, sibling rivalry. And if we assume that, then we're, we're, we're granting the spirit-led biblical authors, um, we are granting them uh, a, um, a um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? We're saying to the biblical author, okay, we trust you. Lead us, teach us, show us. Show us what we've missed. See what I'm saying? And, and I'm going to say that, in essence, my thesis is that this theme of sibling rivalry is not just limited to interfaith rivalry. It is an inner human I want to say battle, but that's the wrong word. It's an, inter, it's an interhuman problem, uh, temptation that must be solved on that level. Okay. Um, second observation is this, and I'm going to say it in the form of a question. All of this suggests that God's love, God's forgiveness, God's grace is being viewed as more or less a zero-sum game. And is that really reliable? Is it really the case that we, that we rightly ought to view God's love, God's grace, God's forgiveness as a zero-sum game? I mean, in other words, is it really true that the one true God who created the world in love and forgiveness and who set his image on every single human being, is it really true that that God could love me but not you? Is it really true that that God could love you but not me? Is it really true that that God could love our group and not their group? Is it really true that that God could love their group and not our group? I mean, does that even really make sense? I mean, right, like we're drawing, when we say sibling rivalry, we're drawing from our natural human experience, right? And sibling rivalry happens because resources are scarce, right? So like in kind of in primal nature, you know, food is scarce, water is scarce, and so we might fight over those things. And in nursery school, toys are scarce, so we might fight over, you know, we might fight over toys, even in family. Sometimes, you know, God bless us, parents, we don't get everything right, and, and we may show favoritism, and so children might fight over the affection of their parents. I mean, okay, all that, all that makes, makes sense, but, but can it even possibly be said about divine love? That divine Love could be looked upon as scarce so that if God gives me his love, that means he can't give it to you? Or so that if God gives us his love, he can't give it to them? Is divine love scarce just like food, water, and G.I. Joe with a Kung Fu grip? Is God's forgiveness scarce in that way? Is God's grace scarce in that way so that if he gives them to us, he's got to take them from them? Does that even makes sense. This would, this would be a very odd way to think of God. This would be a very odd way to think about the love of God. And yet, and yet, the Bible really does contain stories about sibling rivalry. And I'm talking Genesis. Paul wasn't making that stuff up about Isaac and Ishmael, about Jacob and Esau. Those stories really are there in which there really are winners and losers, right? Those stories really are there in which there are apparently those who 
inherit the covenant and the promises. And apparently those who do not, sometimes as Paul pointed out, even by an accident of birth, right? Like that's really and truly there in those stories. So the questions for us going forward, is this the only, re- only way to read these stories? Is there a better way to read these Genesis narratives? And so I hope, I hope that everything we've said so far kind of builds like this big giant funnel that ultimately puts all of its weight on these Genesis narratives. Because if you trace what we just talked about, Right, like, and I used anti-Semitism as as a um, as a uh, as a point in case. If I say that right, um, but but this phenomenon of sibling rivalry, we could have we could have chosen a number of ways to get there. But if you look at what what we did, is we started with Paul, and then carried through the church fathers, and then carried through to policies throughout Europe in the Middle Ages, and up to and including the Holocaust. And so, if you trace that all the way back, it goes all the way back to Paul. And where did Paul get his thoughts from? From the Genesis narrative. And so what I hope that you can see together with me is that from this middle point of this study, I hope you see that we've taken this big conversation about violence, about religious violence, about violence within the Abrahamic faith, and particularly our concern is about violence within Christianity, and we boil it down to this issue of sibling rivalry, which is real, and it's in those stories. And so all the weight, and I'm not afraid to say this because the book of Genesis uh, can handle it. All of the weight of this entire conversation now from this point on falls on those stories which do indeed contain this theme of sibling rivalry. The question is, what do we do with it? What do we do with it? Do we say, well, there's sibling rivalry, there's winners and losers, and I'm sorry, that's just the way God is. He chooses some and he rejects others. It's sibling, so that's just, that's just the deal, and we just go on, sentencing some people to, to being rejected. Esau, I hated. Is that where we're going to live? Is that how we're going to carry ourselves in the world? No. There is a better way. And so in the coming weeks in this study, we're going to look again at these narratives in Genesis, which do indeed contain, again, key word, on the surface, these stories of sibling rivalry. But is there a deeper reality? Is there, is there an alternative message within these stories which ultimately subverts the story that's on the surface? And I leave you with that. We're going to have some fun. Stay tuned, okay? Father, we love